Would you turn with me, please, to our second study in the book of Amos? Amos chapter 1, that's page 764. 764 in the Bible's provided for you. We're studying through these short minor prophets in the Old Testament that date about 800 years before the birth of Christ. And uh, we started studying Amos last week. Amos is not a prophet or the son of a prophet. He was a shepherd. He was a farmer. He was poor. And then God called him to deliver a message uh, to uh, a country that was not his own, to the northern nation of Israel. Uh, And though he was poor, though he was not trained as a prophet, he was called to go to the mightiest leaders of this northern country called Israel and uh, tell them that God sees the evil that they're doing. But not only was he called to announce this to those rulers in that northern country, but to all the rulers surrounding, he was to proclaim to them that God sees the evil they're doing. But much more beyond that, God sent Amos to let those who were being oppressed in Israel, in Judah, in Damascus, in, uh, in Gaza, and all of these other cities and nations mentioned, he was sent to announce to them, those who had thought they were totally forgotten, overlooked, that no one would ever come to their aid, Amos was called to tell them, God sees you. And God will do what is right. It is the message of these minor prophets. Yes, if you're doing evil, if you're running away from the Lord, there is great warning here. But for those, the rest, who bow the knee to Christ, especially those who are discouraged and overwhelmed by evil in the world, God says to you in Amos and all of these minor prophets, I am with you, I see I will make it right. We begin reading in verse 3 of Amos chapter 1 and go through verse 16 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron So I'll send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. It's not important, by the way, that you should know all of these names. Archaeologists don't know all of these names. What you are to understand is that God knows these names, and He's calling out those who are in offense. I'll break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I'll send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I'll cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I'll send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border, so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. Thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I'll send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kiriath. And Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I'll cut off the ruler from its midst, and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your plates as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. He who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, to behold wonderful things from this passage of your word, which is in itself the gospel of God. 
The gospel that God is with us, he sees us. To do what is right in all the earth. May you also do right by those who do not know you as Lord and Savior. Would this be the day of their salvation? Those who are in rebellion against you, would this be the day of their restoration? Those who think they are forgotten, may it be the day they know they are seen. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said, amen. Several years ago, I read a fascinating study, a comparison between two shipwrecks. My family worries about my stability because I love to read about shipwrecks, which is one reason I never go on cruises. But I found this study of a comparison between the survival rates of those who sank with the Titanic versus the survival rates of those who sank with the Lusitania. German U-boat shot down that ship uh, in 1915, and uh, 1,200 souls were lost. 1,500 were lost with the Titanic, 1912. And what scholars were interested in in this study found in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, what was interesting to them is that the survival rate on the Titanic for women and children and elderly and poor was higher than it was for the Lusitania. On the Titanic, the wealthy held back. The first-class passengers held back as the disadvantaged got into the lifeboats. The young men waited for the old men. The men waited for the women and children. More were saved at a significantly higher rate on the Titanic than on the Lusitania. It confounded the scholars, still does. But uh, one theory was that it was because the Titanic took longer to sink than the Lusitania. And one author says, it gave time for those Victorian values to surface, which gave deference to the the lesser advantage. It gave time specifically, they said, for good manners to be manifested. And on the Lusitania, it sank more quickly, and therefore bad manners ruled. Time magazine, I read a response in Time magazine which said, if the difference sounds to you like one group of passengers was more me-centered than the other, then you would be correct. What is to explain why those who would uh, hold back and stoically wait for women, children, elderly, poor to get onto the lifeboats, even if it meant they went down with the ship, versus those strong young men mostly who bullied their way past the rest, took the lifeboats themselves, and sank into the water and left the rest to drown in the Lusitania. What explains the difference? But worldview. Even if the theory is accepted that the, it, the time difference allowed good manners to surface, where did those good manners come from? 
except specifically in the Titanic, from those who, those who, had, uh, who had been affected by the 18th century revivals in the British Isles and America, in which it was often described as the, the, those revivals as the reformation of manners. Manners not being just which fork do you use at a, at a fancy dinner, but the way we treat each other, especially the least. Where does that come from? Except the gospel of God. As the gospel was being preached in these areas and it cut grooves in people's minds and hearts, they began to live differently and react differently even in crisis. And Amos was among these books being taught as this is the way you are to live in society, especially to the least of these. Everyone is to be seen. No one is any longer to, be, to go unnoticed and trampled upon and ignored. The least are the concern of Jesus, even as you were the concern of Jesus, such that he came to die for you. What's the application from these, these stiff and stern warnings? It is that as God sees the details of the oppressed people's lives represented here, we must see the same in response to the gospel we have received. We must imitate this same gospel in all of the places which we find ourselves. This is very specific teaching. That God says that God applies to the whole world because Amos stands in Israel and turns 360 degrees and preaches to the northeast and the east and the southeast. And then he turns south and he turns to the southwest and the northwest. And he then finally circles back to Judah and Israel. And he says, I expect you to live in response to the redemption you've experienced out of Egypt and the redemption you've experienced with the good gift of God's law and to be a light to these nations. What is the good news that God brings to the least and the good news that we have the privilege of preaching and exemplifying in a world that doesn't care about the least? It's good news for human dignity. It's good news for economic justice and it's good news for sexuality. And we only have time to give a cursory glance at each of these things, but I want to survey them enough because they will come up again and again in the prophets. And I want to give you this, much, this much introduction to just what kind of nitty gritty God gets into in the application of the gospel to all ethics. First of all, in regard to human dignity, uh, there are three broad areas that God addresses, that God, that God confronts in which there are offenses against humanity. First in regard to war, and then in regard to slavery, and then in regard to the treating of the dead. In verses uh, three through five and 11 through 15, God confronts the way warfare is being conducted in Damascus and in Edom. Just look at verse three. Uh, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, and that's just a manner of speaking, three and four. I'm, I'm, I'm confronting you for all your transgressions. I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. What is this? 
except the way they treat their victims in warfare. Not only was it enough to stop their, their opponents, it wasn't enough to kill them, it wasn't enough to wound them and incapacitate them, but they insisted in driving threshing sledges over their bodies and ripping them to shreds. And God says, the people of God, you can hear the people of God saying, what do you care about them? That's what they deserve to do to each other. They've rejected your law. They are pagans. Let them kill each other and destroy and wound each other as they wish. But it is God who says, no, even though they worship idols, though they are your enemies, they are first my image bearers. And no one is to be treated this way, even in warfare. We have heard uh, all our lives about the just war theory. Sometimes it's referenced when uh, our nation in particular is considering going to war. Where did that come from? Just war theory, which is seven criteria that are to be weighed before a just nation enters into warfare, proportionality and just cause and so forth. Where did it come from? Except it came from Augustine. St. Augustine, the, the fourth century theologian, who said, if Jesus says we are to love everyone as we love ourselves, and if we are to love even our enemy and to do good against those who persecute us, and yet there is, there's clearly, there are clearly times when we must go to war or, or we're going to be exterminated as a people. The people need to be defended. How do those two things jibe, loving our enemies and going to war? And he developed these criteria that uh, when it is absolutely necessary, when war is, is the last resort, we here are the reasons by which we must go to war. And then he gave subcategories of guidelines for combatants which we've picked up in Geneva Convention and so forth. Our rules of engagement still exist. That, that even if it is necessary to go to war, you must limit yourself to those means that will stop the unjust opponent, maybe even kill them, but not treat them cruelly. In Latin, he put it as malum in se. Malum in se, no act of cruelty. That's what this is. It was one thing to stop their opponent in warfare if they felt that that was justly necessary. It was another thing to treat cruelly this one made in the image of God. This is known elsewhere as total war. God cares even about the way Warfare is conducted, and Christians must be at the forefront of teaching such things rather than always reacting to what media says or what politicians say about the reasons and, and guidelines for war. God shows his care for human dignity, even in this detail of the way an opponent is treated in war. The other, another area, slavery, verses 6 to 10. Of course, we know the chattel slavery practiced in the, seven, the 18th and 19th centuries uh, was condemned by God. Even if someone wants to declare that it is somehow biblical from the New Testament, they can't justify it from these verses, 6 through 10. In the Old Testament, God is opposed to the selling of one human being to another. We're clear about that in the past. But there is an even more numerous 
slavery occurring today, which you know I've mentioned on many occasions, human trafficking. Some estimate in excess of 21 million human, human beings are being trafficked around the world for cheap labor and for sexual purposes. Most of them are between the ages of 9 and 14. It's a $32 billion plus, $32 billion plus a year profit. 100,000 sex slaves in America alone. A concentrated activity around professional athletic events along major highways like 20 and 40 and uh, and 85 and 75. Human beings, mostly children, being trafficked because of boys and girls, because of wanton lust. And God says, I see, and I will repay. In the meantime, he calls his, his people to be involved. And ask yourself, where, what can I do to liberate these slaves, to bring real justice to this situation? It, means getting informed where you might see this activity happening in your discipline, the medical field or law enforcement. It may mean getting involved in our partner ministries like Restore Corps and A Way Out and Sista to Sista, S-I-S-T-A. I was so heartened last time I mentioned this, several of you went right away and got signed up for how you might get involved. It could be as small as putting labels on soaps to go in motel rooms or labels on telephones where to, where to call for help. It might be giving money for a safe house. It, it might be, as some of my parishioners in the past have done, volunteering with the State Highway Patrol, the FBI, to be a safe house for those who are immediately rescued in a sting that they might stay with you for a night. That's not for the faint of heart but it's a first-line action. Internationally, you can be involved with Voice of the Martyrs to stand up not just for human beings who are being trafficked and abused for sexual purposes, but for their stand in the Christian faith or international justice mission. There is something to do, and you, by being a member of this church, are involved by every gift that you give. The third area of human dignity is is death, the way a dead body is treated. I told you that this is a real, these prophets are, are nosy. And here they stick their nose into verses one through three. God shows his concern even for dead bodies of enemies. He rebukes Moab for their, they did defeat their, 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 um, their enemy Edom, but they took the king of Edom and they burned his body to lime. They cremated him. Why would God care what one pagan nation does to the body of a pagan king? Doesn't he deserve it? God says, no, that human being, even as a dead body, bears the image of God. We're called as Christians to take care of our bodies, obviously, while they're alive. But we also give testimony to the resurrection and to 
the gratitude we have for the body that God has given us in his image by the way we treat it after death. Christians have always been distinguished by this, the dignity with which they approach burial and the dignity with which they approach the burial of others. Their earliest witness was digging bodies of the of the poor out of the trash heaps. They weren't, their, they weren't their fellow church members, but they washed them and cleaned them and gave them a dignified burial. And you can imagine the conversations that started. Why in the world are you doing that? Because that body is made in the image of God. We confess it in our catechism. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory at death. But their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in the grave until the resurrection. At least do this, uh, parishioners, for a Christian witness, don't talk anymore like this. Well, when I die, just wrap me in a sheet and throw me in a dumpster. When I die, just kick my body into a pine coffin and throw me in the ground, let me rot away because I'm not there, I'm in heaven. That's pathetic theology. I know what you mean by it. You, you have that sure hope of heaven. But God made your body as a gift, and we don't know you in any other way except through your body. And someday, because Christ died for you body and soul, he's going to grab that body, which is you, and he's going to grab that soul, which is you, and he's going to put you back together never to die again. This is the worldview even more profoundly that moved um, Matthew, uh, Martha Mullen, as I mentioned last week, who get a dignified burial for Tamerlan Tsarnaev, the terrorist. And it's the latent worldview that affected the United States Armed Forces when they took, when they killed bin Laden and they treated his body with dignity and buried it at sea. Why would we do that? Except there's a distant memory that the body itself still contains the image of God. God sees even these details. God sees your body even when it is without its spirit. We also have opportunity to imitate this good grace of God uh, this dignifying treatment of humanity in uh, verses 6 and 7 with regard to economic justice. Here he is exposing the ill treatment of, by the rich of the poor or the employers for the employees. They sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, not literally, but uh, they trample on the head of the poor in the dust, and not literally, but economically. They take advantage of their own brothers and sisters of Israel for their own profit, if in no other way, just by neglecting them, not paying attention to them, not helping them, letting them get poorer, letting them get more disadvantaged rather than sharing generously with them, allowing them to garner, limiting their own consumption so that there is something to share. The Bible makes a distinction 
uh, in these concepts of justice. We have gotten ourselves all twisted up, even in the Christian church, over confusion of what justice means. Because we only have one word, the Bible has different words, all of them translated, we translate justice. The two of those words are mishpat and sadekah. Mishpat is, is uh, used 200 times or so in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and it refers to this retributive justice, rectifying justice. It's punishment. When someone does wrong, then they get justice, mishpat. It's secondary justice. But the other is sadekah, sadekah, righteousness we sometimes translate. It's also it's used interchangeably at times with justice, but it means it's, we could say, relational justice. It's reparative justice. It's repairing what is broken. So we, when we witness to someone and tell them how they can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and God as their father, we are, we are engaging in sadeka, in repairing justice, a broken relationship between God and people. When we help two friends get reconciled, that's sadhaka, that's reparative justice. When we help somebody find a job that breaks their cyclical poverty, that's sadhaka because that's repairing a broken relationship between a human being and creation. When we help someone find emotional counseling or comfort, that's sadhika because that's the rest- restoration, a repair of a, a broken relationship with themselves. Furthermore, the Bible says that when we give our gifts in worship so that they are used for these acts of mercy as we've been describing, that's called sadhika. That's why Job was called a sadiq, why he was called righteous, why he was called just because he gave his gifts as an offering of gratitude to the Lord and it was used to relieve the poor. We call it benevolence or we call it giving, offerings. The Bible calls it righteousness, justice. We have the privilege of participating in this kind of reparative work. And if every human being on the planet were practicing sadhika, primary or reparative justice, there would be no need for retributive punishing justice. And because Jesus Christ has made us righteous and repaired our relationship with God and given us new relationship with one another, we have this joyful responsibility to step into the place of need and ask, Lord, where can you use me to bring repair and justice? God sees those who are in need and uses us to repair it. And then finally, we find God's good news for sexuality. In verse 8, there is this horrific description of the way uh, uh, men in particular were abusing women. Uh, There is also the abuse of women and children mentioned in uh, verses, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 13, which may or may not be a, a reference to abortion. It could be a, a, a symbolic reference, but certainly God was against ripping 
children from the womb and against that kind of mistreatment of women. Here God demonstrates to women in particular, to those in this, in this era when women were victims of men's lusts and even boys. And he says, I made you for so much more. And I give my protection to these who are vulnerable. It is what caused the gospel to spread so rapidly across the first century world. When women and children and slaves heard that sex was not something that any man with power had a right to, but rather was reserved for those who had made a lifelong commitment in marriage to another. Women and children and slaves flocked into the church because they had never been seen, never been heard, never been advocated for before. They were taught that all of the gods were against them. But here was a God who identified himself as a father, who called them his daughters, who called them his children. And he said, these are mine, and I made them for more than to be objects of your lust. C.S. Lewis said that the Christian teaching on sexuality is the hardest and most offensive in the world. It's the most offensive thing to the world to say, sex is not your right until you have pledged yourself in life and in death to your spouse. It's not your right. I made you for so much more. I made you more than an object. I made you more than someone who can be reduced to services you can provide to another for quick pleasure. There's more than one way to traffic human beings. One way is by continuing in a hookup culture where men and women both, so-called consensuality, say, you give me what I want, I'll give you what you want, no strings attached. You can come and go as you want, no strings attached. I can tell you as a pastor, it is never equally balanced. At least one or the other, one or the other is usually thinking, well, if I give in here, maybe I'll get more of a relationship, and it never comes. The Bible opposes this kind of premarital activity not because God is a killjoy, just the opposite. I can tell you again as a pastor, no one who, who participates in a hookup culture lives in joy, at least not for the decades to come. And there is regret in marriage. There's regret when you have to tell your children what you did. There are grooves that are cut by that kind of engagement. But I say to you today, you can repair those grooves if you give your life to Christ right now. Even if, you're not a, even if you are a Christian, you give your life to Christ now and say, you take my body and, and you use me. Keep me pure for yourself. He can repair those grooves. And he can give you back the years the locust has eaten. 
To persist in that kind of living is to persist in a life of shame and God doesn't traffic in shame. It's not God who is making you feel ashamed because of these Victorian values that are imposed on you. It's the shame that is brought by acting as less than a human being made in the image of God. God made you for more. And those of you who are single or same-sex attracted or gay and living, trying to live celibately, you say, what, what do you have to tell me? You're married. So many people are married around me. I have no hope of that in this life. Here's what Jesus tells you. Jesus says in this strange passage in Matthew 19, 12, he said, there are some who are like eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean they're literally eunuchs, but it means that they have chosen to be single and not indulge their sexual appetites in this life for the kingdom of heaven. We can piece together at least this much from Scripture. That God says that sexuality in this life is just a taste of the perfection of existence in the all-consuming love of God in the life which is to come. That's why there will be no marriage or giving in marriage in the life which is to come, that because the love that will consume us in God will so far surpass any sexual experience in this life. And that will be everyone's experience, single or married. And then it seems to indicate this, that those of you who do not have the pleasure of sexual experience in a married relationship in this world will somehow be peculiarly appreciated by your Savior. Every Christian living faithfully, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But there will be a particular word to those who have kept themselves not only pure in this life, but for Jesus. Well done. It is to be seen. The gospel of God, a Savior, is to be seen in a way that transforms the way you live, even in the moment of crisis. I read a few years ago about a graduate of Biola in Los Angeles Christian school named Jason Leaf. Jason Leaf in high school went on a mission trip like we, we encourage here. And, and there he, he saw that two of his passions could be united in service to Christ, his passion for art and for social work. He came back to Los Angeles and he started a ministry called Sacred Streets. And, and he would take repurposed materials and set up an art studio on the streets in Skid Row. And he and his fellow artists would, would, uh, would engage in conversation with those who were in Skid Row, homeless, drug addicts, uh, uh, mentally ill. And they would say, may I sketch your face? And they would sit down and they would engage. They would look in the eye and they would sketch their face. And then they would put it, they would hang it in the art studio 
on Skid Row to be displayed by everyone. And those who were drawn would come and stand by their, their portrait and welcome everybody else and proudly say, this is, this is a picture of me. Jason said there are a couple of conversations that he especially remembers. He remembers Robert who had been addicted to cocaine for decades, been in and out of treatment, but when he saw his face sketched, he voluntarily re-entered drug rehab and got clean. And then there was James. When he was getting his face drawn, he said, you know, no one has ever looked me in the eye before. And he said, they, they say that you can, you can tell everything by looking at someone's eyes. What do you see? What do you see in me? I want you to know that God sees you. Whatever you're experiencing, wherever you think you're unknown, unseen, maybe it's making you squirm because you know you have repentance to do. Others of you are near despair, hurting because you think no one sees me. But as Hagar called her God who saw her in her hurt and her abandoned child, she said, God, you are Be'er Lahai Roy. You are the God who takes notice of me. And in response to that grace, we have the privilege of taking notice of the unseen and the invisible, telling them that God has made them in his image, leading them into a relationship with Christ, and seeing the gospel holistically transform their life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you and ask that in our businesses, in our homes, in our governance, uh, in our commerce, in our private lives, in our engagement with the poor, our engagement with orphans and widows and virtual widows, we ask, make us the hands and feet of Jesus that you might get a name for yourself and many more children in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.